Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I wish they wouldn't have let me in the country in 1972 when I was four years old. I wish they would have just said, no, 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 no. You ain't adopting him. You ain't, you ain't bringing him here. You ain't, you ain't, you ain't doing this. But to bring me to the U.S., and lived there for 49 years. And then all of a sudden just say, hey, we're putting you on an airplane. You're leaving. I mean, that, that, that tore me up. This is Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media in support of the film Blue Bayou. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos, founder and editor of Diaspora. In this five-part series, we're hearing real stories from men and women who were internationally adopted by Americans and spent their entire lives completely unaware that they were not American citizens themselves until they were sent away. This is a heartbreaking reality that affects more than 35,000 adult adoptees in the United States. And yet, The majority of Americans have no idea this crisis is happening for so many. Their stories deserve to be heard. In this episode, we'll hear two stories of two men, both raised in the South, one from Texas and one from Georgia. Both now find themselves forced to live far from the people and country they love. We begin with the story of Joe Nugent, in his own words. Well, my name started out as Joe Nugent. That's in Beaumont, Texas. My father and my mother, both U.S. citizens, they adopted me and changed my name to Nugent. So I've always been known as Joe Nugent. But now, here in Morocco, where I'm at now, my name is Mohamed El Lamada. So it's a whole, whole different change right there. Just really can't believe it. Joe's story begins at the Navy base in Rota, Spain. His adopted father was stationed there back in the 60s where he met and married Joe's adopted mom. After he was finished in the road of Spain with service and everything, took me to, uh, to the United States in 1972. And uh, he illegally adopted me in 1977, him and my mom. And uh, my name got changed to Nugent. I came to the country when I was four years old. So I really didn't know too much. I, I grew up 
the American lifestyle. I played with the neighborhood kids and everything. I remember going to school and everything when I was, you know, like about seven, eight years old. And uh, first thing we did in, in, in class was uh, stand up and we put our hands on our heart and we said the Pledge of Allegiance. So, I mean, the American flag is the only flag I ever known. For nearly 50 years, Joe has lived in Beaumont, a small city in Southeast Texas. Everything was good in Beaumont. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a painter. You know, I do sheetrock work. I, I do a lot of remodeling. I, I, I do all kinds of remodeling, to tell you the truth. And uh, we work every day, seven days a week, most, most times. Most times we work seven days a week. I mean, there's plenty of work, plenty of work where I come from. And uh, it, it, it's, 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 it was good. I got a lot of friends. I got, you know, I got a couple kids. I got a mom that's in Virginia. I got, I got aunts and uncles, relatives. Joe admits he got in a little bit of trouble in his younger days, resulting in a criminal record from drinking and getting into a few fights. But then he got convicted for a DWI, driving while intoxicated. I went to prison for a DWI. But anyways, I ain't killed nobody. I ain't raped no kids. I ain't molested nothing. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm, they're, they're painting me as to be a terrible person, but I'm not a terrible person. While in prison, it was revealed to Joe that he was not an American citizen. I was young, man. I, I, I took it for granted. I didn't know nothing about citizenships. I didn't know nothing about going to the, somewhere to get sworn in. I never felt like a foreigner. I never felt like that I needed to. It's shit. Everybody I knew was American citizens. Everybody and, and everybody that knew me thinks that I'm American citizens. I wish I'd have known what I needed to do to become a U.S. citizen a long time ago. Because of his conviction and lack of citizenship, Joe was deported to Morocco. The deportation officers and everything, they, uh, they was all sad and everything. They said, man, we can't believe it, man. We can't believe that they're deporting me. I said, what you mean you can't believe they're deporting me? They said, man, if anybody if anybody belongs in the United States, it's you. They said, man, you sound like a redneck. They said, man, you you uh, you, you belong here. You don't you don't know nothing about Morocco. I said, well, I said, we'll do something. They said, man, we can't do nothing. It's the United States government in Washington. They the ones that got all the cards right now. And they're deporting everybody. And, and you're one of them. You got to go. As soon as Joe landed at Casablanca Airport in Morocco, he was greeted with trouble. All of a sudden, I got I got about, man, I got about 10, 15 police officers all, all around me. I said, man, what, what, I said, what's going on? What's going on? They said, follow me, follow, follow. And I'm really not understanding what they're saying because they're speaking in Arabic. And so, they, they, so they're, they're, they're grabbing me by the arm and they're pointing. They said, come on, come on, come on, come on. They, they interrogated me for like seven hours. They're asking me, what's my name? Where, where do I live? I'm trying to tell them. I said, look, I just got deported. They're not understanding what I'm talking about. They said, where do you live? I said, I, said, I, I live in Morocco. I said, I'm here in Morocco. I said, they said, no, no, where do you live? I said, I just got here to Morocco. I don't live nowhere. When he was finally let go, Joe had no idea where to go. I said, which way is the best way to go? I don't know nothing. Is there any way, is there anybody out here that can help me find a job, get, get on my feet? They said, no, no, you need to go. They need to go. 
I left and uh, I get on a train. I go to Rabat, to the capital. So here I am at, at, at the capital. I'm trying to get me a motel room. I, man, I got I got $800, all I got. Man, I, I need me some sleep. I need to think about this. Joe quickly learned he was unable to get a motel room anywhere without a passport or Moroccan ID. So I'm thinking to myself, damn, man. So I have to sleep on a bench. So I'm, a, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of town and a bright area, sleeping on a bench. I was thinking to myself, man, what am I going to do, man? What am I going to do? When Joe went to the American embassy looking for any help or guidance as to how he should get an ID, he was met with disappointment. And he said, well, you know, uh, uh, you, sh- you should have did the right thing and, and became a citizen and all this old stuff. You wouldn't have to go through all this. And I'm looking at him, I said, man, so I'm biting my tongue. I'm biting my tongue. I said, look, brother, I said, you know, all I need to know is, can you tell me how to go get an identification? I, 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 need, I need a Moroccan ID bag. I said, I can't, I can't move around. They said, well, uh, 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 I don't know nothing about that, but uh, there's nothing here we can do for you. He said, well, we're through talking to you. This, this is a Marine. This is a United States Marine. He said, man, we're through talking to you right now, but uh, you got to leave. So, so I'm looking, all of a sudden, there, there's, there's a whole bunch of Moroccan police officers around me and everything else like that. And I'm saying to myself, man, what in the world's going An older police officer pulled Joe aside and told him to come with him. At first, Joe was worried he was going to be locked up or beaten. He says, I know, I know what you're going through and everything else like that. I know they're, you know, they're not going to help you. But this here place right here is where you get your ID and everything else like that. So he took me inside to, 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 the, to, the, to the office and everything, and he explained to him my situation that I didn't speak, I didn't speak Arabic and, and all that. He told him I didn't have no ID and, 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 and for them to help me get an ID. So that was good, that, that was good. Joe spent the next few hours trying to explain his situation. He says, where you live? I says, I don't live nowhere. I said, I don't know. Morocco, wherever, wherever I land, that's, that's my address. So, man, I go through that, man, for a few more hours and everything else like that. And they're getting ready to close. They hurry up and they just give me an ID. They give me an ID with the name Mohammed El Lamada. And guess what? They put my Beaumont address on there, USA, Beaumont address. <laughs> so, you, you know, I'm running around, I'm running around with a Moroccan ID. With a, with, a, with a Muslim name, with a Texas address, Beaumont, Texas. Even after getting his ID, Joe was still without a plan or any real support. I gotta say, it's, 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 it's been hell, it's been hell. I, I've been doing a lot of walking around. Been doing, you know, when I first got out, I slept on a bunch of benches, bunch of benches. And uh, money was tight, so I had like, Every three, every three or four days, I'd get me a motel room where I could shower, clean up, you know, stuff like that and everything, and get back out there, walk around, see, see if I could find a job and everything. Can't find a job. The only job in housing Joe could find is working at a small little restaurant in exchange for room and board. It ain't much of a restaurant. I've got a little old small room, you know, and that's, that's about it. I mean, but I don't know nobody here. I mean, I, it's, it's hard for me to even communicate with somebody. It's, 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 
Man, like I say, if, if it wasn't for this phone, this phone right here, I'd be lost. I'd be lost. Because I use this phone a lot, and I really can't afford to can't afford this phone, but I but I use it a lot. I have to 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 get by over here. The language and cultural barriers make doing anything a challenge for Joe, from eating to finding a doctor about his worsening health. Coming here to Morocco now is it's a hell of a change. It's a hell of a change. I'm picking up a little bit of Arabic here, but the words that I need to, to, to ask people say, hey, where can I do this? Where can I go get a job? Where can I do, where, can, how can I get some help over here? I can't, I can't communicate that way. They don't understand me. I, I don't understand them. And uh, it's, it's, it's a hell of a life over here. It's a hell of a life. Joe's father died years ago, and it's difficult for him to speak about his situation to his mother in Virginia. She's kind of mad at me. She, she, she thinks Morocco is the best country in the world, and she thinks that I need to stay here in Morocco. And I'm thinking to myself, since this is such a beautiful country, and, and oh, why ain't you over here? I don't know nothing about Morocco. I don't know nothing about the government. I don't know. I don't know who the president is. I don't. I don't know the laws. I don't know the rules. I don't know. I don't even know how to talk to a talk to a person. Upon the release of this episode, Joe will have been in Morocco for over a year. One year too long. When I first came here to Morocco and everything else like that, you know, I had friends. I had a little support and everything else like that. People was calling me every day, you know, checking up on me, asking me how I'm doing, what I need, and all this whole stuff and everything else like that. So everything was good, man. You know, the, 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 first, the first three or four or five months was beautiful. I mean, I was, I was you know, doing, doing what I needed to do, man, try to, try to blend in and everything. But the longer I stayed here in Morocco, man, it, it, people started blowing me off, you know. They wasn't calling me, and they wasn't sending me no money, and they 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 they, 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 they wasn't, you know. So communication kind of kind of gradually just disintegrated stuff. So you know, out of sight, out of mind. I, I I think they're just getting sick of listening listening to me. I mean, I'm I'm depressing them. I think they're giving up on me. I mean, as, as far as me coming back to the country and all that, I, it's just. And I don't want to put too much burden on them, so I don't. I don't ask them for nothing. I'm losing them slowly by slow. I'm, I'm losing them. I'm losing them. I'm losing. I'm losing everything. You know, losing everything. Joe can't afford a lawyer to review his case, but is hopeful for legislation and organizations like Adoptee Advocacy to help him and other adoptees that have been deported. I don't think. I don't think adopted kids need to go through it. As far as little kids coming into the country. And not knowing nothing or anything yet, that, I, man, that's 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 about as wrong as that's wrong. Like I said, when I was four years old in 1972, when I came to America, I wish they would have just denied my parents right then and says, "No, you're not adopting him. You're not bringing him into this country." And that would have been better for me. There's a lot of kids out there going through the same situation that I'm going through. All Joe wants is to be back home in America. Man, I miss America. I miss everybody. I miss the American people. I miss everybody. I mean, shit. I mean, it, it ain't just one thing. It ain't just, you know, you, you, your kids, you, you, your mom, your, your friends. I mean, it's the whole country. 
miss I miss everything about it. I love everything about it. I don't feel like that I deserve this. I'm a Texas boy. Been in America for 49 years. I'm 53 years old. Been in America for 49 years. It's the only home I know. It's the only home I know. I don't know if it's if it's wrong. I don't know if it's right. But in my opinion, I think I'm right. I'm coming back. I don't know how, but I'm coming back. I have to. It's my country. I mean, my dad was in the uh, United States Navy. He he served. He served in the military. He fought for this country. He adopted me. But he dead now. But don't you think that he'd be rolling over in his grave right now if he knew that I got deported? after being his son, after him adopting me. I mean, I have to come back. I got no choice. The true experience for so many adoptees has largely gone unseen and unheard, until now. Here is Blue Bayou star Alicia Vikander on the power and hope behind the film. This is a human story. We put a light on something that is a reality that should never, ever happen. So I hope that these people that are now um, been removed from, from, from their family and homes uh, shall be able to return at some point. See the Focus Features film, Blue Bayou, written and directed by Justin Chan and starring Justin Chan and Alicia Vikander. Blue Bayou is out now only in theaters. Now, back to Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America. When I grew up, I'm serious, this is, this, uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag every morning. My hand on my, on my heart. You know, it's, it should never happen. It should never happen. That is a baby Hailu Davis, better known to friends and family as Mike Davis. Mike was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. When Mike was four months old, his biological parents divorced and left him with his grandmother. She could hardly, you know, take care of me. When I was eight years old, I was working at the American Community School as a ball boy. And I met this lady, this American lady named Barney. And she had a son, his age was about my age. And uh, she liked me and I was playing tennis with her son. And uh, one night, it was kind of gotten late, and she wanted to give me a ride home to my grandmother's house. When she saw the sad conditions Mike and his grandmother were living in, she later asked his grandmother if she would let someone adopt him. The woman told her friend, who was about to be stationed in Ethiopia and wanted to adopt a child. A week later, Mike met his father, Master Sergeant Oliver S.J. Davis. He asked my grandmother if she was okay, if you could raise me. My grandmother, she said it was okay. And I started living with him, started going to school. Actually, the same, the same, the same school that I was, I was working as a ball boy, I started going to school there. It was American school. 
They stayed in Ethiopia for several years before the end of his duty. Mike's father filed a petition with the INS, classifying him as an orphan and as an immediate relative of a U.S. citizen. Mike had a military ID card the same as any American dependent living on a base abroad. On August 30th, 1976, Mike's adoption was approved. Less than two months later, they arrived in the United States. Mike was the typical military brat. His father was first stationed in Fort Lee, Virginia, then in Fort Gordon, Georgia, before finally settling in Augusta, Georgia. My dad was a single parent. He also adopted another Ethiopian guy. He's not, you know, not biological brother, but he wasn't like a brother to me. He adopted him. So we were two of us that got adopted. And uh, living American life, it was everything. We have, uh, we have our ID cards, we got a social security number. Yeah, it was, uh, it was perfect family. Me and my dad was very, very close. Mike grew up playing team sports, made his high school tennis team, and got a job at 16 delivering pizzas. My childhood was very perfect, very nice. And my daddy taught me, you know, to respect people and also to, you know, to look after yourself. Mike graduated and had two sons with his high school sweetheart, though the relationship did not last. At 19, he got a loan and opened up his own pizza shop near the military base. I'll never forget it. Yeah. And I had a lot of employees. We were delivering pizza to Fort Gordon, to military base. So business was really, really good. Mike wanted to stay in Augusta to be near his retired father, who had health issues stemming from being wounded during his service in Vietnam. Always the entrepreneur, Mike opened several small businesses, from the pizza shop to a convenience store and a full-service gas station. The last one was how he met his now wife, Laura. She used to come get gas from, from us, so, you know, it's just how I met her. Feel her thanks for her. And, you know, we just, we just talk and talk, and then we start falling in love. Yeah, she was very beautiful. Oh, very unique. <laughs> I couldn't understand the word he said to start with. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I went with my friend over there, and we got gas, and I met Mike, and started talking and kind of hit it off. He bought me a little flower. Um, and then we just kept in touch after that. I guess he thought I was a little country girl from Georgia, and I don't know. <laughs> He's pretty much the same. A sweet, charming, educated. Just couldn't understand, you know, his accent a little bit to start with. But, um, but now I can understand him perfectly. In 24 years. <laughs> when she got pregnant, she called me up, told me that, do I love her? I said, yes, I do. She said, can she come live with me? Because her parents just uh, disowned her, kicked her out because she was pregnant. I told her, no problem, come on. And so we have our, our first son, Solomon. Mike had a good business and home with his young family. This entire time, Mike believed that since he was adopted by an American, he was an American. My dad was like, uh, he was like biological father to me. He, we, never, ne we never really discussed adoption in our house, never. It was something, you know, we never talked about it. When we grew up, you grew up around a military area in a small town like Augusta, you don't hear immigration issues. I have a military ID card, independent ID card. I thought I had citizenship because my dad was 
and military, and also he was a U.S. citizen. I had driving license, social security number, and I thought I was an American citizen already. So when Mike ran into some legal trouble in the early 90s, a drug-related misdemeanor, he was surprised to find that an issue was raised regarding his citizenship status. I went to see them and they could not find my A file. And then they sent me home and told me to get back with them. And uh, I was called in to go to court, immigration court. And that's when the whole uh, nightmare started. It would be months from when the immigration officer couldn't find Mike in the system to when he was called to appear in immigration court. When I went to court, they told me that to get an attorney. It was very expensive during that time. They were asking like $10,000. Mike was also shocked to find out that he was given an additional charge of deportability as an aggravated felon. Told the judge that I could not afford an attorney. You know, I have children, I have kids. He heavily advised me, get, get an attorney. So I got an attorney. My attorney claimed I was a US citizen through adoption, death citizenship. And the immigration judge said, prove my citizenship by, by uh, bringing a, a passport. When I applied for a passport, the, they denied me passport. And uh, also my attorney, he would not even answer my phone calls. I went to his office, he was never around. Days later, Mike was heading to his court hearing over 150 miles away from his home. On the way to court, my car broke down. I couldn't make it to the court. I called the court office and uh, I told her what my situation was. And she, she told me that I, should, I don't have to be there. Only my attorney have to appear. And he did not appear. The judge ordered Mike to be deported in absentia, in absence. Despite the deportation order, for the next few years, nothing happened. Mike and his family went on thinking everything would work out. Mike and Laura even got married in 1997. I forgot all about them, believe me. I said, these people are crazy. I keep living my life. You know, I, I had a business. We bought a, you know, we had a house, my wife's working. We had our second child in 1999, you know. And I'm just, I was just living my life. I wasn't worrying about them. But uh, one night, early in the morning, uh, July 16, 2003, they come knock on my door. My wife wake me up, hey, baby, somebody's at the door, you know? And I say, who is it this time of the night, this time in the morning, five o'clock in the morning? There was a police officer who, who knocked on the door. When I opened for the police officer, they come out. And I told them I have kids in the house, you know? I don't want them to be scared. You know, I'm just like, like, <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine it. There was, there was guns and everything. I'm like, what's going on with this? What you want? You know, they asked me, are you up about Hyrule Davis? I said, yes. They said, immigration? I said, for what? And he said, we got to take you in. And I told my wife to call my dad. They handcuffed me, and they took me. We had our own business. Everything was going fine. And, and then when they picked him up, it was like our whole world just was uprooted. And... It's been hard, and my kids were asleep when it happened. When they woke up, their dad was gone. Mike was taken to an immigration detention center hours away in South Georgia. I have never been in prison. 
I never seen nothing like that. I went to boot camp. Boot camp is real nice, you know, just, you know, it's a military type based thing. And uh, I was very shocked to see so many foreigners and I, I have never thought they would, these people be treated like that in America. I mean, that was really sad. Just a uh, whole bunch of them. It is worse than jail, actually. Yeah. Because in our case, we don't know what's going, what's, what happened. When, when you are in jail, if you're in jail, you know when you're going to get out. Here, you don't know what's going to happen to you. They're going to send you up or they're going to deport you or, you know, when you're going to be out. It was really torture, actually. It would be several days before Mike was able to contact his family. From there, he was moved to Louisiana, where he was detained by ICE. Mike, his father, and Laura filed multiple petitions and motions with immigration and the DHS to make him a citizen. But nothing was successful. It's been real hard. I've, I've emailed, I've written letters to governors, talk show hosts. I've emailed the judge. I've written letters to judges. It's, it just seems like no one... No one understands that he was adopted by a U.S. citizen, and it don't make sense. He has a petition that was approved that classifies him as as Mr. Davis's relatives by adoption, and I just I just don't understand, you know, why they don't why they don't agree with that. And it's been real hard on us, me and my kids. Ooh, we've we've been through hell. While Mike was being detained, he spent time researching in the library to fight his case and discovered that legally, he was only allowed to be detained for six months while waiting for the government of Ethiopia to accept his deportation. In the end, he would spend a year and a half in immigration detainment. On June 22, 2005, Mike was taken by ICE officers to Atlanta airport to be deported to Ethiopia. He was not given the opportunity to say goodbye to his wife and kids. He had no luggage and no money. One of the ICE officers gave him $20. When Mike arrived in Ethiopia, he couldn't believe it. It had been more than 30 years since he was there. He had nowhere to go, and he didn't speak the language. I didn't have nothing. I didn't know nobody here. I've never been back to Ethiopia. And I didn't have no cash, no nothing with me. They just rolled me out here just to go in to end my life. That's what it was. Anybody shouldn't have it. They, they know that I don't know. I don't have family here. I don't have no connection here. You know, you just don't throw somebody out like that as a human being. He found a taxi driver who spoke English. I told him that if you could get me a room, the next morning I'll pay him and I promised him. But take me to a place, to a hotel where they have a phone that I could call to the United States. And I did that and I called my wife and I called my dad. And they sent me some cash through Western Union. So, you know, that's how I survived my 24 hours. I didn't go to sleep. (laughs) Mike admits a lot of thoughts went through his head, but he told himself he was a fighter and he had a winning case. I want to survive for my kids and everything. After more than a year since his deportation, Laura wasn't able to keep the pizza shop or the house. She tried to sublease a pizza shop, and she was working with two kids. It was very, very stressful for her. We lost, we lost a pizza shop, and then we lost our house, 
and she was going through extreme, extreme hardship. She lost that and she was, you know, she was trying to do her best. Laura sold the cars and got tickets for herself and the kids to go to Ethiopia to try and make a life there as a family. I did eventually go over there. I got rid of the house, everything I owned. We live over there, but I was hoping that everything was going to work out and they were going to issue him, um, they were going to let him come back to the U.S. But, at, you know, at the time, I just, I didn't know what to do without him. And we've been together so long and, you know, we love him. And... That was my decision. I, I needed to go and be with them. So they come here, they moved here. And, uh, but we couldn't, she couldn't really make it here. It was really rough. I wasn't working, couldn't find no job. She was Caucasian. And she stands out here like, you know, it was very, very rough for her. After two months of struggling as a family in Ethiopia, Mike and Laura knew it would be too difficult for the kids to stay. So... I got her to go to the U.S. Embassy to help them, uh, you know, to help them get, get just uh, her tickets so she could go back. It would be better here than over there than here, you know. We just couldn't, we couldn't survive over there. I couldn't get a job. They had M16s on every corner. Couldn't, weren't allowed to go out the gate most of the time. It was, it was rough. And I thought everything was going to work out and we'd, we'd all come back. It's been more than 15 years since they left. More than 15 years since Mike has been able to hug his family. They talk to him a lot, but they have a hard time with it, especially Father's Day and birthday. And and I, I try to tell them we have an appeal going on. I try to talk to them about it, but they don't want to talk about it too much. I, I think they don't want to get their heart hurt, you know, again. They were so close. They were real close. In the 15 years since Mike has been deported, he has missed a lot of life events. Seeing his children grow into adults, the birth of his grandchildren, and the passing of his father. We were real close. I went over there all the time. I'd help him with his computer. My kids would go over there and help him. Um, and he told us that everything was, that he did all the paperwork properly. And he gave me all the documents that he had, and I'm looking at them right now. And they were approved in July 9th of 1976. It's terrible. Yeah, they grown up now. I want my little son. I get emotional when I get to talk to them, especially my, little, my younger son. I want him to go to college, graduate from high school, but he's not in college yet. But if I was there, he would have been to college. He would be in college by now. So much time has passed now since he first arrived, and Mike is now 57 years old. Yet life is still very hard. Not that much. I go to church, and uh, I'm not working. I used to work for. It's been about been about uh, a year since I went to. Uh, I worked. Really can't, can't find no job. I'm living in a house that's made out of uh, dirt. No running water. We get water once a week. My main concern is my wife's not doing too well. She's working, but she's not really, you know, she's suffering there. He always knows when to call. He always knows what to say. 
Um, we talk a lot about, you know, politics and and our past, and he reminds me of things. I remind him of some things. <laughs> and it's just like we're talking in the same room together, but we're not. Despite his situation, Mike maintains a positive spirit. I'm blessed, believe me. I've seen, I've seen some, some worse people. Yeah. I believe in my kids. I could win my kids. I can't give up. I mean, I just, you know, when you know something is not right, you know, it just, it's hard to give up. Seriously. You know, hope is always there, you know. Ah, you can do it. It's going to be done, you know. Laura keeps hope alive, too. Oh, I pray, and I, I, I've been trying to keep in contact with the lawyer that's here um, that's trying to help us with his appeal. And I hope we get he comes back and we have a business again and the grandkids can come over and <laughs> it'd be so nice. Have us a nice house, maybe in the country somewhere by the lake. Mike hopes things get better for all adoptees, young and old, that believe in the American dream like him. Adopted children like this, like us, our families suffer a lot, a lot. Kids, you know, just not right. I mean, this is really, it's not right. Just uh, sleepless night. It's like, a, it's really a nightmare, you know, that will never ends. One of my sons have a daughter I have not seen yet. I'm a grandfather. Yeah. Plus, I have other two kids, and they also have children I have not seen yet. It's like in this uh, nightmare. One day, you know, I'll wake up and say, oh, this will be over. But uh, this citizenship bill in Congress, if they could pass it, and they could stop all this suffering. These are, you know, human be- humans doing this to other humans. We are adopted as with American citizen family. We lived lived like, like Americans. We are Americans. There is nothing else. You know, it's, this is not a game. We have to change from one culture to another culture. We got adapted to that culture. You live that. You don't know. You let this one go, and then you're back into this like this. It's not right. I miss almost almost everything. You know. Friends, you know, the security. You know, I'm not secure here. I talk American, I look, I know, I walk, I, I walk it, I talk, but what I miss America is just all, all the lifestyle. You know, you could go somewhere, you could do something, you could achieve things there. Mike also hopes everyone hearing his story will learn something. Be careful. Tomorrow, tomorrow's not promised to you. Whatever you be with your, with your family, you know, you got to keep loving your family, support your family. So July 16, 2003, they knocked on my door. My life changed. That night, I locked, locked my pizza shop, worked all night long, happy and everything, went to sleep. The next morning, I can't even go back to my pizza shop no more. Or see my kids. Yeah. On the next episode of Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America. Who gets to choose somebody's life and their fate to, to say, hey, 
you get to be a citizen just because you're a little bit younger. You get, you know, you're a little bit older, so you don't get to be a citizen. You get kicked out. You know, you go through all the process of being in jail and, you know, being dehumanized, you know, just because you were a little bit older. <laughs> like, that just, that's crazy to me. Unerased, the deportation of adoptees in America was created on behalf of Focus Features and co-produced by Focus Features and Treefort Media. I'm your host, Dino Ray Ramos. Executive producers are Kelly Gardner and Lisa Ammerman. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Consulting producer, Tim Schauer. Additional production help from Haley Mandelberg and Justin Washington. With special thanks to Christopher Larson and Anissa Druzito from Adoptee Advocacy. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts to raise awareness about this crisis so more people can hear these unimaginable stories. Inspired by true events, the new film Blue Bayou shines an important light on the impact our immigration policies have on American families today. Watch Focus Features' new film, Blue Bayou, out now only in theaters.